Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 17th of January, and this is Govind Rajathi Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, still experiencing clear skies. And I wouldn't mention it if it were not such a rarity of late. Our top stories and themes for the day: the stock market slip after fresh highs. HDFC posts the 34% jump in profits. More investors join the party on the back of record dematerialized accounts. Why do airlines fail to communicate with passengers at times of crisis? How private ports will help boost India's growth. And India's auto industry pushes back on potential direct imports by companies like Tesla. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Indian markets hit a high and then slip. Indian markets once again surged for direction and slipped, taking a cue from global stocks ahead of the dollar and US bond yields rising on Tuesday. Markets are less sure right now that global interest rate cuts could come as early as March thanks to some hawkish remarks from central bank policymakers in Europe. Back home, Indian markets were pulled down by information technology stocks which fell after a dramatic turnaround, that's my words, on Monday. The markets seem to be in a remarkable forgiving or accommodating mode when it came to IT stocks because they did all right but they did not exactly set the street on fire. Both the Nifty 50 and the Sensex hit record highs for the third session in a row before pulling back at close. The BSE Sensex fell 199 points to end at 73129 while the Nifty 50 on the other hand closed down 65 points at 22032. Meanwhile, The big result everyone was waiting for today was HDFC Bank which reported a 34% jump in standalone net profits to about 16000 crores for the third quarter. Now, that drives home the point that the financial sector in general and banking sector in specific continues to be in good if not improving shape and within that private banks are ruling the roost so to speak. But results were strong by the way in stock broking like ICICI Securities, Insurance, ICICI Lombard and public sector owned banks or state owned banks like maharashtra bank back to hdfc total income on a standalone basis rose to about 81000 crore for the quarter against 51000 crore last year on a consolidated basis the bank's profit increased almost 40% to 17700 crores there were some marginal increases in gross non performing assets though net non performing assets came down more investors join the stock market party more investors are crowding into the stock market suggesting that liquidity flows will remain strong for some time the total number of dematerialized or demat accounts increased to 139 million in december 2023 while new account additions jumped to 4.2 million in the last month of the year that's december according to data from brokerage motilal oswal reported by business standard now this is in contrast when i say this i mean 4.2 million is in contrast to average monthly additions which have been around 2.1 million in 2223 so when there is so much liquidity sloshing around the system what better time to raise funds for yourself and the company more often for yourself as was evident last year nothing wrong in that of course most initial public offer or ipo debuts so far this year have been on exchanges in asia pacific with india's equity market hosting more listings than other regional peers so of 38 global listings in the past 2 weeks that's in 2024 34 were in asia pacific according to data compiled by bloomberg 
The Americas followed with just three, Middle East one, Europe had none, according to the data. India, of course, has been one of the most active, extending last year's record for debuts as companies obviously try and take advantage of those valuations, which in turn has been boosted by supply, both domestic and international, and more international of late as well. Banks in general are doing well internationally as well. Just to go back to the point that we discussed a little earlier, Goldman Sachs, whose bullish reports we report here, has reported a 51% jump in profits to $2 billion thanks to its bet on asset and wealth management, which seems to be paying off. Revenue increased 7% to about $11 billion. Oil prices stay down. And our energy segment supported by India Energy Week. Despite all the turmoil in the Red Sea, which includes missiles flying back and forth, oil prices are still stable to edging lower. The passage of oil through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal is the issue, not the production of it in that region. In North America, extreme cold weather reduced oil production in some areas and US equity markets were closed for a holiday. Brent crude was quoting between $78 and $79 a barrel overnight. Merchant vessels are now being advised by the United States Navy to avoid the Red Sea and Houthi militants had hit a US-owned commercial vehicle with an anti-ship ballistic missile on Monday, Bloomberg reported. Elsewhere in Africa, to switch gears in a manner of speaking, Shell is set to conclude nearly a century of operations in Nigerian onshore oil and gas after agreeing to sell its subsidiary there to a consortium of five mostly local companies for up to $2.4 billion, according to Reuters. Shell pioneered Nigeria's oil and gas businesses beginning in the 1930s but has struggled for years. It's been trying to sell this onshore oil and gas business, though it will remain active in the more lucrative and less problematic offshore sector. Shell's presence in the Niger Delta has been mired with controversy over the years, And the Western oil majors have always been viewed as exploiting countries like Nigeria and their natural reserves. Shell itself has faced multiple lawsuits for compensation over damage caused as a result of spills in the Niger Delta. Many Western companies are pulling out from Nigeria as they focus on newer, more profitable operations. And those include companies like ExxonMobil, Italy's Eni and Norway's Econor. Nemo Bassi, executive director of Nigerian advocacy group Health of Mother Earth Foundation, told Reuters that Shell must own up to its responsibility and that means full payment for the remediation and restoration of the polluted areas as well as the reparations to the host communities. The energy segment was brought to you by India Energy Week to happen on February 6th in Goa. For more details, log on to www.indiaenergyweek.com. India's automakers fight back. The core report has argued consistently for a level playing field for automakers and not allowing companies to sell directly to India, as has been the stated and accepted policy for several decades. Now, this is in the context of Tesla, who obviously has been negotiating with the Indian government to sell directly into India and phase in manufacturing over a period of time, as opposed to bringing in it first. India's automobile industry has now begun speaking up. Earlier, Kinetics' Sulaja Firodia Motwani made a case for domestic investment being respected. And now Mahindra and Mahindra's CEO has also opened up. The interesting thing is that Tesla does not seem to be really poised to enter India at this point. At least that's my view from what I've gleaned. This is, of course, despite all the clamor, which would have you believe that they were pounding at the doors to enter. 
While a Tesla investment would of course be welcome, the interests of a pretty large and invested automobile base in India, including by various Indian companies and of course foreign giants, ranging from the Japanese to German and of course Korean, all of whom are also now strong in electric, is something to bear in mind. Also, Tesla is being wooed quite desperately by several countries, including in Asia, and a decision to invest for Tesla would not be a simple one, particularly when times are not so rosy as they were even six months to a year ago. Tesla is a cool car, no doubt, but a car in the 20 to 25 lakh range rupee, as it is rumored, is unlikely to set the country's roads on fire. Mahindra and Mahindra's chief said that they told the government that there must be a level playing field between domestic and foreign players and local manufacturing must be promoted. Mahindra and Tata Motors have pressed Indian officials, that's in the government, privately not to lower import taxes of 100% on electric vehicles and protect domestic firms and their foreign investors as the government reviews Tesla's plans to enter the market, Reuters reported last month and again yesterday. The Mahindra CEO said that their approach was essentially to create a stronger industry in India and not to be in a situation where manufacturing is done outside India and India becomes just an importer of products. India sold about 4 million cars last year. Only about 82,000 of those were electric vehicles. But obviously, this segment, like in many other parts of the world, is growing fast, in this case at 115% versus the previous year. India's airlines struggle to respond to crisis. Dense fog in northern India on Tuesday for the third straight day of an intense cold wave disrupted more than 160 flights. As many as 128 flights in the New Delhi International Airport, which is the capital, were delayed with 33 cancelled, according to aviation site Flight Radar 24, and that was creating an effect or created an effect that cascaded through flight schedules nationwide, Reuters reported. Thanks to those conditions, passengers were advised that flights not equipped for low visibility landings or Category 3 could experience delays or diversions. Now, the last few days, of course, have seen perhaps the worst of both airlines and passenger behavior thanks to these cascading delays and the quite terrible handling of them. It's also turning out from the core reports conversation with aviation experts that most airlines seem to lack a clear SOP or standard operating procedure to handle delays, particularly from a communication point of view. It is my own belief that as a reasonably frequent traveler that good consistent communication in a situation involving mounting delays will reduce passenger angst, if not dramatically. Yesterday, I spoke with Pilot Union President Captain Sam Thomas on the cockpit view on delays and the handling of them. Today, I try and bring in a slightly broader perspective by speaking to Jitendra Bhargav, former Executive Director of Air India and a well-known commentator on aviation issues. I began by asking him that given the cascading delays and tempers, could airlines have managed and communicated better to passengers, accepting that the larger problem of fog-induced delays was in many ways beyond everyone's control. To understand the whole communication exercise, one needs to imagine that you are at the airport, which has been affected by fog with multiple flight cancellations and airport terminal beaming with passengers who are basically angry. Now, everybody had one question. When will my flight take? That's the question that people want an answer for. Now, the question is, can a staffer of any airline, or for that matter, even a senior person, answer this question? The answer is no, because an airline is unaware of 
or cannot forecast how long will the fog persist, how long will the disruption at the airport be there. And let's not forget, at any airport, there are multiple airlines operating and they have multiple flights which have been impacted, disrupted due to fog. In what sequence will the flights be taking off once the fog gets clear? So the questions are, can staff of an airline be privy to when the forecast or when the fog will disappear or when the visibility will improve or whether the flight resumption will take place? The answer is no. In what sequence will the flights take off? They're not privy because the multiple airlines, ATC will decide the sequence whenever the flight is ready to take off, etc. So while from a customer perspective, it's a valid question that they want to know when will the flight take off. But from the airline perspective, do they have this information? Can they have this information? The answer is no. So it's not a communication failure per se, but the reality is a staffer can say, well, we expect flight to take off in a couple of hours. A couple of hours pass and the customer goes back and says, Look, you're lying. You've not given me the accurate information. So from experience, an airline comes out and says, look, if we do not have accurate information, why share it with a customer? Right. So, and I think that's where the problem is because silence creates more problems and lack of complete communication. You're right that people would want specific information, which that airline or the airport is not able to give because of conditions beyond their control. But the complete silence, which is not saying anything, which is not even saying that, okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's 7 a.m. in the morning. We know you've been here for an hour. We would love to update you on your flight, which was supposed to take off an hour ago. But we cannot, unfortunately, at this time because we've not received any further information. And we will come back to you in 10 minutes, maybe give you the same update. That is, we don't know. But why don't you do that? It's easier said than done, I would say. Sharing information and some people, you see, we are a very heterogeneous society. Some people will accept this argument that an airline is keeping me informed. The others will start accusing the airline and say, what are they doing? Repeating the same message time and again. I'm looking for specific departure information and they're not giving me. You know, it's a cash 22 situation. But I, for one, would as a communicator, would say, yes, go ahead and communicate. Because you're not concocting that the fog is disrupting the flight. You are on a solid ground. People are seeing it. So share it with them. The visibility level is this at the moment. This is what the Met says. And this is what the scenario is. And we are doing it for your safety. We cannot take a load the minima and we will take a risk. No, it's not happening. So and it happens world over. You see, the other aspect is expectations. In United States, 2,700 flights got cancelled last week because of the snowstorm. Did we have a huge cry? You know the scenario at the Mumbai airport where your passengers squatting on the ground and having meals? It's very, very irresponsible on the part of passengers. But when you take a human approach, you say, but what could have they done? They were at Goa airport for a long time. Then they get diverted to Mumbai. They had to look at it. So people have to be appreciative of the operational constraints which are thrust on an airline for a factor which is totally beyond their control. You see, you can be specific that I'm talking about my specific flight, but an airline is looking at totality. 
you can take off to satisfy a passenger and get the aircraft stranded there because the flight and duty time limitation will prohibit a pilot from moving further. So I think it comes back to the point that you've accepted, which is that all of these things, uh, I mean, at the cost of uh, killing with detail, can be communicated because some communication is better than no communication and communication done consistently. So would you say that that's the one takeaway from this whole thing, at least this time? They should communicate. But what I've been surprised with, you have a crisis on hand, so many passengers impacted. So because there is no leadership in the aviation industry, India, who is the largest domestic player, or Tata's, for example, having three airlines under the belt, somebody has to come forth and say, look, we apologize, we are sorry about it, but these are factors beyond our control. Please appreciate the constraints. You know, having been the communicator for an airline for a long time, I really feel that, look, what is the harm? 10% of the people will educate, get educated in this phase. Next time it takes another 10% people will, and we will reach a level, as I said earlier, in America, people appreciate it. They don't go up in arm. They don't abuse the airline. They don't abuse the staff. So we got to start somewhere. Right. So you're saying that basically both sets of people need to communicate. The leadership needs to communicate. Maybe that's a little later because, you know, not when it's happening. But definitely the ground staff can do a better job. And finally, within the aircraft, of course, pilots' job is to fly and not to communicate. But pilots world over do communicate and some more articulately than the others. But they definitely keep you posted if there are mounting delays. Your reaction on that? You know, simple thing is what is the pilot in command responsibility? Once a plane is in the air, he becomes the head. He decides. But as long as the aircraft on ground, he has limitations. He has to get the information from the concerned authorities and relay the same. Now, are you in a position to do so? He can only create a positive vibe with them. I hope that, look, we have been through ours, for example, on ground. We will shortly take off. And the med department has a word of reassurance that visibility will improve shortly and we'll be on our way to our destination. But communication in any environment, in any situation, is better than maintaining a strike silence. Mr. Bhargava, thank you so much for joining me. Meanwhile, in what is emerging as a tragic comedy of sorts, the Bureau of Civil Aviation Security has issued notices to Indigo Airlines and the Mumbai airport operator, that's MIL, citing multiple violations of security rules and inadequate arrangements in handling passengers of a Goa-Delhi flight that was diverted to the nation's financial capital, that's Mumbai, on Sunday night. The reason for the notice? Passengers got off that Delhi-Goa flight that was diverted to Mumbai, sat on the tarmac and began eating their food there. Now this, remember, was after a delay of 12 hours, so they landed at 11pm. Of course, the passengers must have refused to budge, having been treated as cattle for the best part of the day. What do you do then? Lati charged them into submission. I suspect that day is not far off and would have arrived sooner were it not for this little thing known as camera phones. Speaking of camera phones, quite obviously a video of the passengers eating on the tarmac went viral on social media on Monday. So, the aviation minister held a meeting at midnight apparently as the announcement took care to mention the timing of the meeting, after which the notices began flying. Why the private sector must run ports 
While the aviation industry has not exactly covered itself in glory in the last few days, it's largely accepted that the private sector is doing a good or better job of running India's airports, at least compared to what used to be the situation earlier. Well, look at the difference, and I do stress on the word look, in efficiency and aesthetics of a Delhi, Mumbai, Bangalore or Hyderabad airport. So if airports, then why not seaports as well? India's port sector is seeing much interest and activity recently, including with privatization of several ports, which began around 20 years ago. The Adani Group's subsidiary Adani Ports and Special Economic Zone is the largest private port operator in the country. I spoke with Captain Jimmy Sarp, former chairman of P&O Ports in India and now an independent consultant. P&O Ports, by the way, is now DP World. Captain Sarp pointed out that the port sector would shape up much better if the efficiency of the private sector came into play. The government has no business to be in ports, he emphasized. Firstly, India has this tendering process, which is normal. Globally, it is done. Unfortunately, at some stage along the tendering process, the builders got in. And then they came out with these point systems. I think that builders should not be in this running of the ports. They can come in to build the port and leave rather than qualify with all their points to make the port. Because after they make the port, all they do is sell it and go away. And then you need a good port operator. So you need port operators to bid and win the ports and then build them equip them, put the IT systems in to make it efficient and run it. That's how I think it should be. And this norm, I have said this all along, highest bidder who gives me royalty gets the award, which is wrong. What should be really looked at by the government of India now and the minor port governments, state governments is, who is giving me how much equipment, turnaround time of the ships, efficiency, these are parameters that should be weighed in on awarding a contract. How much money are you investing in the port? What type of equipment are you giving? How much employment are you creating? Did you know, Govind, that for every one job that is created in the port, four or five jobs are created logistically outside the port? So with our population, we need to give jobs to people. And therefore, the more ports you create, the more employment you give to the youth who's coming out. Right. So I'll come to the management of ports in a moment. But tell us about the natural part of it or the nature part of it. All ports are not as well positioned. They don't have the draft to receive big ships. Now, India seems to be at a natural disadvantage there. And or that's one. Second is, if we are at a natural disadvantage in the areas where we want to have ports, what does it take to bridge that gap in terms of construction or capital investment? Well, all the natural harbors or deep water ports that could be built have already been built. Now, if you look at Rizinjan, you look at Wadwan, you look at any new ports that are coming up, you have to go outside. You have to look at the deep water contour where it comes because you want 18 meters of natural depth. So you have to go off the coast. This way, you avoid all the environmental problems and you prevent all the red flags that keep coming up for every single thing. Fortunately, the government ensures that this red flag system is stopped now and ports development goes ahead. So we need to go out. We need to find areas where the deep water contour comes in, where there is a rock shelf. So you can excavate in the dry by building a cofferdam around the rock shelf, getting the water in into the deep water state and then developing the port. 
you know, developing the port is only one thing. You need fantastic or very, very efficient and good connectivity between road and rail. You need to bring in and take out the volume seamlessly. And that is another folly for India that doesn't happen. Mundra, Mr. Adani has bridged that. I went there and I saw how he has created all these big, broad roads and highways and everything in order to evacuate and bring in his volume. That is what is required for any new port development that takes place. And the government, with all the money it is earning from royalties in different ports, should look at not only six-laning, you know, the roads, and as I've, again, from my piano days always said, Concord needs to be privatized. We need private operators. I have fought for the rail corridor. So many years ago, we went and made a representation with Manmohan Singh. Finally, the freight corridor is happening. It's not finished yet, but when it happens, it'll be a boon. This is only between JNPT and Delhi. But more freight corridors need to be created for connectivity, for efficiency. So you're saying that if there are any natural disadvantages, for example, in the harbour, that's not insurmountable. You're saying the larger challenge is really ensuring that the goods get to the port and obviously get out as well. So you're saying that's the bigger challenge as compared to building the actual port and even if that's at a natural disadvantage. Yeah, now you have dredgers who can dredge deep channels for you. You have equipment which is good enough to blast the rock shells out to create the basins for your port. Machinery, technology, everything is now available. In India, the challenges are the human capital, where the humans say we don't want the port. For no rhyme or reason, they will just say we don't want the port. Which is wrong. If India has to prosper, it needs ports. And as of now, did you know that China handles 44.5 million metric tons to India's 11.4 million metric tons? I'm now only talking about containers. And if you look at the volume, India handles approximately 1.5 billion metric tons of overall cargo to China's 15.4 billion metric tons of cargo, 15 times more. So if you want to compete, we have to have more ports. And the present government is looking at developing more ports. But are you saying that, I mean, environmentalists have their reasons for, let's say, opposing a certain project. But you're saying that if we had more ports, we would have automatically reached the numbers that, let's say, China is doing? I think the Indian entrepreneur spirit is very strong. I think if the capacity is there, the volume is there. When I started at NSICT, I'll give you an example. In the first calendar year of handling our NSICT port, we had bid that we would handle 150,000 TEUs. When we came on stream, Govind, we handled 487, 192 TEUs. This is fantastic. So to say that where is the volume going to come from? No, the volume will come if you show that you have the capacity and most importantly, you have the efficiency. When we came on stream, we did 29 moves per hour per crane, while JNPT next door was only doing 9 moves per hour per crane. So what happened? The customers moved to us. Same way, if you create capacity with efficiency, the volume will come. And if India wants to go to 2030 as a $7.3 trillion economy, we need more efficient ports, Wadwan being, for starters, as an absolute go-ahead ASAP.
Tune into my conversation with him, the link for which is also in the description. And on that note, from efficient airports to efficient ports, have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>